This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. City Council is going to be meeting later on this afternoon, and potholes are on the agenda, as you might expect. Uh, I know we talked last week about some of the deteriorating conditions, especially along Main Street West between McMaster University and Westdale Secondary, which is right where we are here in the west end of the city. And it is atrocious. It's terrible. But to be fair, it's not the only ex- part of town that's, uh, that's falling apart, uh, road-wise anyway. And uh, there's obviously going to be some people that, all over the city, I think, that are going to have their own uh, particular concerns about the, the road conditions. How are you going to fix it? How are you going to pay for it, more importantly? That's uh, going to be the essence, I think, of the discussion later on this afternoon. Sam Marillo is the counselor for Ward 4 out of the east end of the city. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about the problem. Morning, Sam. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Bill. And yourself? Good. I'd have asked you to come in the studio to talk about this, but I wouldn't want you to drive on the roads. Uh, it's, it's, it's really problematic, and it's not just the west end of the city, is it? Well, again, you have to look at this in a two-tier scenario. When you look at neighborhood asset uh, management versus that of the main arteries, uh, there is a two-tier uh, system. So, for instance, uh, in, in my area, as an example, I have one of the least deficient areas, particularly in the neighborhoods. Some of the main arteries, like Barton Street between Woodward and Strathern, uh, need a lot of attention. And it's on the books, and we're doing the engineering work as we speak. And come 2019, it will be fully redeveloped, including sewers. The same could be said about Parkdale North, north of Burlington Street, and as well as Burlington Street itself, which is on our capital budget list. So when you look at neighborhoods versus um, the actual main arteries, there is a two-tier system. The main arteries are used far greater, obviously. Um, and in, in essence, we have truck traffic, bus traffic. And as a result of that volume and the, the, the weight of that, those vehic- that vehicular traffic, coupled with the most recent climate change issues and this extreme weather we're experiencing between having 16-degree days to minus 40 within a couple of weeks, play havoc uh, on, on our roads. So there's so many variables uh, that need to be taken into account that's contributing to the life cycle of these roads. Uh, Main West was scheduled to to be um, okay until LRT. Clearly, that's not the case. And as a result, we need to be more uh, proactive at, uh, and reactive to the, to the issue so that we can actually b- bridge it until that uh, LRT is constructed. And, and Sam, you know historically, all the years you've been on council, that come springtime every year, there's always going to be a plethora of, of problems uh, on some of the roads that probably weren't even scheduled to be redone, but simply because of the condition and, and the thaw that comes, and of course, the result, of course, of potholes and a number of other things. But we, as you mentioned, we got a false fall, or false spring this year, about a week and a half or so ago. We've had a number of them, though. If you look at this winter, we've gone from having cold alerts to all of a sudden being in the pluses, right? So that's not, that's not a normal climate that we've had. And our engineering standards, not too dissimilar to the flooding crisis that we dealt with when, when climate change contributed to the volume of water that we get per second, did not uh, meet the standards of our sewer infrastructure. We've spent hundreds of millions of dollars to address that. It's done. And that's a direct relation to that climate change. Now, this is another factor, another variable. So the complexity of this issue, is not, it's not as simple as, as having brand new roads or filling potholes. It, everything changes as a result of extreme weather. Everything else, all the variables change accordingly. And I know everyone's just looking at it from the point of leaving their house to get to work and home. But there are so many other variables that are contributing to it, and, and we're trying to get ahead of it. 
as we did with the the, uh, the basement flooding uh, crisis that we dealt with. You look at these past couple of weeks with the volume of water that we experienced. Not too long ago, with, with about 10 years ago, we would have seen thousands of basements flooded in the East End. Those days are gone. But it, it, it took an extreme uh, case to, to, to put together a plan of action, which we successfully did, in order to eliminate that problem and move forward. The same can be said about the pothole crisis that we're now faced with, which is not as serious as the basement flooding, but still something we need to deal with. Well, absolutely. But give us a, a, some insight here, because uh, you guys are into the budget cycle right now. You're talking about the 2018 budget. What does this do to your public works budget? I mean, there's only so much money in the pot, and you've allocated some for road repairs, and then something like this comes along, which really throws a monkey wrench into the work. Yeah, and we, we allocate nearly $100 million a year for roads. Uh, and over and above that, I know... I've allocated nearly $10 million of area rating over and above uh, that hundred, nearly $100 million a year per year. So obviously when, when we're setting up these budgets, we're now always playing catch-up. But there's always, there's always some room through our, our reserves as well as trying to incorporate it into our present budget. So, and that's something we're working on. We're working on looking at means of funding it in, within this budgetary period and, and trying to expedite it to... Uh, to deal with it. Now, government governance is all about inputs and outputs, right? But this is only one input of thousands that we receive in a year, whether it be this or public transit, or whether it be public health, or whether it be the environment, or whether it be wrecking wrecking community services, whether it be ambulance, whether it be police. Like, at the end of the day, we provide over uh, 250 services. So really, on the grand scheme of things, potholes really doesn't register up there with some of the most major priorities that we have, but it is a day-to-day uh, inconvenience and nuisance that we need to address, uh, and we do so on a budgetary basis, but we can't control the weather, and we can't control the extreme weather that we're experiencing. All we can do is react to it accordingly and try to be as proactive as possible with, with respect to the specifications of our engineering standards to, from a, from a futuristic standpoint, try to get ahead of it as we successfully did with the basement flooding issue here in Hamilton. Yeah, except that given the condition of some of these roads, I mean, proactive's out the window. That's already happened. You have to be reactive now to what the conditions are right now, which means you're going to have to find the money somewhere. And we'll find it within the budget. And my point, though, is we have to deal with the immediacy of it, so the short term is the reaction. But more importantly, the proaction, the proactive component is, as we deal with the water and sewer uh, basement flooding issue, is we have to... We have to, uh, through our surge program, we assessed what were the contributing factors. We knew what the engineering standards needed to be uh, amended, and we did that. So all the new sewers that we put in, the, in Ward 4 East Hamilton and the hundreds of millions of dollars that we spent were done so based on the new specifications that are needed and not the old specifications that led to the flooding. So the same could be said about these uh, potholes. Innovation is, it plays a role. We always follow best practices. We're in tune and communicating with all municipalities throughout uh, not only Canada, but obviously North America, North America and the world. And we have to look at, based on, we're not the only municipality going through this. It's clear, a problem clear across the country and clear across the continent. So what, what are those engineering standards that need to be amended in order to, to really address this issue from a futuristic standpoint. Well, this is a southern Ontario problem. I mean, Toronto's going through the same problem with, with potholes and, and other things, and I'm sure Windsor is. I was down in Windsor a couple of weekends ago. The Every roads there are terrible. Yeah, it's it's miserable. Uh, but how do you respond to this? Now, you, you know that one of the things on the agenda is going to be Main Street West. I mean, you know, I talked to Councillor Ferguson, who's the chair of Public Works. Yep. Uh, I've talked to some of the staff members about this. Uh, and I know that everybody's got their own individual problems, but uh, Councillor Johnson's going to bring this up and say, look, you guys are going to have to fix Main Street West. It's got to be done. 
Uh, now, you uh, have a record on city council of being one of these guys that doesn't like to throw good money after bad. You know that uh, you've already scheduled to tear that road up with the LRT construction, and you were hoping against hope that this was going to be maintained until then. Clearly it's not. So how, how, how do you rationalize that, the fact that you're going to have to spend probably a fair bit of money to try to get that section of road done? Again, it's a stopgap measure, uh, one that needs to be done. Uh, obviously, the road's not, not lasting as long as we anticipated it to do or to last. Uh, so we need to come to the, come to the plate, but all, not, only, not only on that road, but all of them. So what we've done is we've gotten together with staff and other councillors uh, to show leadership that we, we all have problematic areas. So how are we going to address not only Main Street West, and now we're asking for a commitment from Councillor Johnson as well, because as I've mentioned to you, I've spent millions of dollars of area rating money that I've allocated to our roads. So we're going to ask Councillor Johnson to, to, to come halfway, and the other half could, could come out of either our existing budget and or uh, the future budget. But we're also, as, as councillors, we all have a street somewhere in our ward that we want to bump up. In my case, I'd love to see Burlington Street become a priority and done this year as well. So if, if, um, if we have the commitment from uh, Councillor Aiden uh, Johnson and others, that we'll, we'll, we'll meet them 50% on Main, West, on Main West, and I can get Burlington Street done in Ward 4, and others can get uh, their street that is a priority done, I think we all can come together and ensure that all uh, residents throughout the city benefit from this Main Street West uh, uh, crisis that we're faced with. Sam, let me ask you something on a philosophical level. I'm glad you brought that up because you're one of the few councillors in the old part of the city, wards one through eight, that did uh, gear, earmark some of the money from from this uh, area rating fund uh, towards hard infrastructure. I, I, listen, I'm not going to name names unless you want to get down that road, but, but some of some of your colleagues have been a little lax about that, and they've been spending that money on things other than infrastructure. Is it about time the council committed to putting at least most, if not all, of that money towards what it was intended to be, which was the infrastructure for the older part of the city? Okay, it all depends on how you define infrastructure. Now, parks are infrastructure as well, so are roads and sewers, so are sidewalks. But again, if you're going to buy a pizza oven or, or, or some other type of <laughs> nonsense, I don't support that. But, uh, and it should be focused on hard infrastructure. Having said that, Councillor Collins, uh, Jackson, and myself have, have really led the charge along, along that front. If you look at the numbers, uh, we, we, have, we have dedicated to hard infrastructure. Others, and they can, they can justify their own and own situations, and they have. Um, probably haven't, but but the the, the the reality is this: we we have that when that was set up, and it was set up in a manner during the, during the flooding crisis. And the real catalyst to the capital infrastructure investment was because of that flooding scenario. So when when there was a decision made, um, we, we the infrastructure component was high on my list, and as a result. I think everyone agreed that that was the priority and continues to be a priority. So, yes, I think there should be far more focus on that money going to roads, sewers, and sidewalks um, and, and another hard infrastructure rather than uh, pizza ovens and Chinese gardens. Well, I mean, it's $1.5 million. And, and listen, there is an award in the city and from wards 1 through 8 that, that doesn't have some sort of infrastructure. And by that, I'm talking about sewers, roads, and, and sidewalks, hard infrastructure concerns. And, and I, I agree with you, and I hope that's going to be the sentiment that carries the day today uh, with Councillor Johnson out in the, uh, the west end of the city. That Look at this is a priority. I mean, if your roof is leaking, you don't go out and buy a color TV. You go and get the roof fixed. And I, that's why I, I think a lot of us, and I know from I can only speak for myself, 
I, I have some concerns with this participatory budget process, which is what adding on to pressures as opposed to dealing with the existing pressures. So if, if your house is falling apart and you, and you come across some money, you don't ask your kids what we should do with that money because they're going to tell you, let's go to Walt Disney World, right? And everyone's happy about that, but the house is still falling apart. So the, the, the area rating money should be dedicated to the existing pressures. Once we get to a revenue neutral scenario, if that day ever comes, then we can go out to the public and add new pressures. But until then, we need to focus on our existing priorities. And those priorities are quite clear and already listed in a 10-year capital budget process, uh, which we can pick up uh, all of the projects that we need to move forward. So if you're going to do a participatory budget process, look at the existing capital budget. We have a 10-year waiting list. Pick one. And then go with it, uh, rather than adding new pressures. But Sam, that's the way it was supposed to be done. And if you look at the original motion on how this whole money was allocated, that's exactly what's stated there. Uh, you and a couple of other councillors, you mentioned Councillor Collins and Chancellor Jackson, are being true to that. The rest of them are getting off the hook on this. But everything has to still be okay by council. Why did you let it get out of hand like this? And that's a good question. And as you know, and you've been there, is uh, at the end of the day, every councillor is going to be held accountable with their constituents. Within the parameters of the bylaw, it should be clearly spelled out greater than what it is. But the reality is this. We all have to go to the electorate and be held accountable. And the media's, the media's responsibility in all of this is to make sure all of us are held accountable. Collectively, democracy will prevail. And as a result, it wasn't a contravention per se, because it's clearly not spelled out in, that, in those manners, in that manner. So we need to tighten up that language, but the media also needs to expose it. And ultimately, if the public concurs with whatever decision was made by that counselor, then democracy always prevails. Well, and we've done that on this program, and I know other journalists around the town have tried to point this out, and it's it's awfully frustrating when, when things like this occur. Uh, and, and I'm not even going to suggest that the counselors that are doing that are, aren't necessarily picking pet projects, but you're right, by definition, when you go participatory budgeting, it's somebody else's pet project, and you say, okay, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll allocate the money to that. And, and there are some very worthy projects, but you have to ask yourself, is that the priority in that area when you've got crumbling roads and you've got crumbling sidewalks and things of that nature? Uh, somewhere, somewhere, this counselor, that area, has to take the responsibility and do the greater thing for the greater good, and that doesn't always happen. And again, and that's why we have elections. So if, if, if the public accepts that, then... Uh democracy prevails. Well, Sam, I'm hoping that's part of the discussion later on this afternoon with Council, and uh, I would guess that probably you and a couple of the other guys we just mentioned here are the people that may bring it up. Uh, we'll see uh, just how Council decides to handle this today. appreciate the time today, Sam. Oh, likewise, Bill. Take care. Ward 4 Councillor Sam Rula. Uh, and listen, I'm, I mentioned this before, and, and I think it bears repeating. We absolutely, positively have to do something about how we spend money. And, and I know that every time that we get into this about, you know, deficits and, and infrastructure deficits and things of that nature, and everybody says, well, you know, we, we just have to tax more money. No, you don't. It's how the money gets spent. And that's really the major concern at this stage. And you have to ask yourself about priorities and about how they're spending money. And, and there's, a, I think, an awful lot of very legitimate questions need to be asked about how council actually allocates this and where they go with their capital. And this, this, well, I call it a slush fund, and I know the councillors get really peed off at me when I say that, but, boy, they handed out $1.5 million each in wards one through eight and said, here. And some of them just say, well, I'm going to go to my people and ask about this. Well, listen, you already know what the priorities are. 
that's great to say, you know what? The roads are all in good shape now. The sidewalks are in good shape. The sewers are in pretty good shape in this area. Uh, I, we've got some extra money. I'll go to the folks and see what, what projects they'd like to get done. But while you've got crumbling roads, fix the roads before you do anything else. Alexis writes on email. Says, this discretionary slush fund has long been a source of irritation to me. Remember the bridge to nowhere? Clearly, there are numerous projects to which this extra money could be directed. Numerous projects that have already been through the rigorous vetting process that have either been denied or underfunded. Perhaps council could revisit some of those. Here's another idea. If council has all this money to gift when they think it will do the most good for them electorally, perhaps it should go back into general revenues and be used to reduce the property taxes. There's some ideas. I appreciate the email, Alexis. I think you're speaking for an awful lot of people in this community. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, yesterday afternoon in the House of Commons, Finance Minister Bill Morneau-Rose and presented this year's budget for the federal government. And, uh, well, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. We know that we can't push for equality without confronting some difficult truths. Movements like Me Too and Time's Up have shed light on disturbing situations and behaviors that too often go unreported. So to better support those who've been victims of sexual harassment in the workplace, we'll boost legal aid funding across the country. Uh, Minister Morneau talking about gender-based budgeting and financing, of course, for a number of different projects. I believe the, the phrase gender-based was used, I, I, I think the number I saw was over 200 times, I think, in his budget presentation. So it was obviously a theme. But uh, many people uh, looking at uh, the budget from yesterday and suggesting it was a sort of a hold-the-line budget. Joining us to talk about this is Alan Maslow, who is the uh, Distinguished Research Professor, School of Public Policy and Administration at Carleton University in Ottawa. Professor, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Good morning. Is, is it typical uh, when a government's in a four-year mandate like this to, to do one of these third-year budgets, uh, kind of hold the line, let's hold a little bit of money back and, and, and just... Let's play wait and see and kind of just rag the puck for one year? Yeah, that's, that's quite typical. They, you tend to get a big splash in the first year, uh, maybe a smaller one in the second year, and then, then save all your ammunition for the fourth year, which is the, the pre-election budget. So it's, this is not unusual. Well, and the, we saw that with some of the things that uh, Morneau talked about yesterday. Of course, the big announcement that I guess sh- shocked the NDP and a few others was uh, this whole thing about PharmaCare, which is yes. something that's really, it's been on the books since 1964. We just never got around to it. But right. we're not going to institute it this year. We're going to talk about it this year. And, and that's, I guess, one of the things that he's going to put into the, the 2019 budget. Well, I think this is potentially the real sleeper in, in this budget is the is the thing on PharmaCare. Um, the... Um, the title they've given to the committee is uh, not a, not to study it, but an advisory council on implementation, mm-hmm. which assumes they've made a decision they want to go forward. And and I guess the other sign that they're serious about it is, uh, I mean, I, is they were able to attract the minister of health from Ontario to head up the uh, head up the exercise. I. I appreciate there were probably other factors in his decision but uh, <laughs> yeah i think so but he wouldn't give up uh ministry of health for uh for just a uh, uh you know a, a nothing job so i think they're they're serious about it we may see it in the next year's budget or it may be uh, a central part of their uh, campaign platform in 2019 but um if we look back two years from now and we've got PharmaCare, I think we, we will point to this budget as the, uh, the uh, 
you know, the, as an important moment in, in that development. And, and it, by the way, the, the historical perspective that I just mentioned, I think, is, is, is well worth repeating here, because way, way back when we whole, started this whole system back in the mid-1960s, this was supposed to be, Pharmacare was supposed to be part of that, but gubs, governments and subsequent governments kept saying, oh, we'll get around to it. We can't afford it right now, but we're going to get around to it. Right, right. Uh, right so this right. is not the first time we've heard this in, like, no, in a throne speech or anything. So it's a, you know, it's a potential, and the, the, the emphasis so far is on the word potential but uh but it could turn out to be very significant it could as i said it could be in two years we could look back at this budget and say that was the central part of the budget and of course as you mentioned the fact that they've already pretty much hired dr hoskins to to oversee this whole thing tells us that uh, they're pretty intent on getting this thing rolling for next year Mm -hmm. let's let's talk about some of the other things i I mentioned in the clip that we used from the the finance minister about gender-based budgeting and and i know some people kind of rolled their eyes when the government talked about doing this but there seemed to be a real theme to what he was talking about yesterday yeah there was um i mean the 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 money that is there's no money in this budget on the pharmacare issue but the money that is being spent in this budget is being spent in two areas that the prime minister has been pretty consistent in talking about throughout his Time. One is uh, equity for women, uh, this gender-based budgeting. <coughs> Excuse me. And the other is uh, is indigenous programs for indigenous peoples. Um, and he's been very strong on both of those. And that's where virtually all the new money in this budget is going. There's an interesting phenomenon that I was noticing too, and it was sort of an undercurrent. Uh, but one of the fastest growing and probably, I guess, one of the most in, uh, influential uh, voting blocks in this country are the millennials. I, I get the real sense that there was a, a real effort to try to attract them with some of the, the things that were mentioned. And, and obviously the Pharmacare would be part of that. Uh, but the parental leave uh, guidelines and, and, and the, the way that they've modified that program, uh, right. things of that nature, that, those are young families that are trying to find that, that family work balance. And, and it seems as if they're really trying to reach out to that group. Yeah, I think I think that's very clear. I mean, it's uh, as I said, it's partly uh it's partly what the prime minister has been talking about pretty consistently and it's partly uh I think uh boxing in in some sense uh boxing in the uh the NDP uh because it's clearly moving uh a lot of the budget is clearly moving in the dire- leftwards and and uh eating up some of the space that the NDP would occupy. I guess a lot of the time what some people would tend to forget in situations like this, Professor, is that uh, a budget document such as uh, was delivered, or any finance minister has delivered, is as much a political document as an economic document. In other words, the end game here, is, and I talked about this on my, my commentary an hour or so ago on the program, the end game here is, is, the, is the next year election. And, and let's right. face it, uh, since the Confederation, every prime minister, every finance minister, the ultimate goal here is to get reelected in the next election. And if they can use that, that portfolio and that platform to do it, uh, they certainly try. And, and right. this is really part of a, a, a strategy, isn't it, towards, uh, towards 2019? Yeah, I think it. I think it is, and uh, I mean, every as you say, every budget is political. This one is uh, probably even more political than most. In the uh, in this, and, and there's 
in a, in a sense, less economic analysis in this budget than there is in many others. It's it's uh, it's almost entirely a political document. Because invariably you'll hear from economists that are going to say, well, you know, they haven't done anything about the national debt. Uh, there's the deficit and that keeps growing, and, right. and, you know, we're really concerned about that. But uh, the finance minister wasn't speaking to the economists. He was trying to speak to, no. to that middle class, quote-unquote. Uh, exactly, exactly. And, and on the deficit, I mean, what they... It's true they're they're continuing to run deficits, but what they appear to be focusing on is the debt to GDP ratio, which is currently about thirty percent, uh, and that's according to their projections and their uh, their plans. That's going to go down very gradually uh, into the mid twenties over the next several years. But you know, just to put that into some perspective, at the time in um, I guess it was 1995 when then finance minister Paul Martin started his big war on on the deficit. The debt to GDP ratio then was over 70 percent. So uh, you know we, we've uh, we're not at all in the same kind of straits that we were in in the mid 1990s. And he developed a strategy as finance minister, that being Paul Martin. Uh, I mean, they had 11 years of, of surpluses, government surpluses, right. and, and the, the tact in those days, if uh, we call a professor, was uh, half of the surplus went to pay off the debt, the other half went into infrastructure spending, so it seemed to work pretty well. Right. But, but, but for the last eight or ten years, it's been nothing but deficits, not just with this government, but with the previous government. Are we, are we numb to that number now? Does that mean as much to us as, as, a, as, as maybe some people want it to, to mean to us? Uh. I don't know if I'd use the word numb, but we don't seem to be terribly concerned about it. And, and you know, as an economist, I think the uh, number in the mid-20s to 30% is very manageable. The only caveat I would put on that is if we were suddenly to go into a serious recession mm-hmm. uh, for whatever reason, uh, that does constrain what governments will be able to do to help get us out of the recession. But... Certainly in terms of uh, fiscal management, uh, a debt-to-GDP ratio in that range is not at all a problem. I mean, you know, if you want to look at this and, and, and equate this to our own personal circumstances, most of us, of course, have relatively high debt in this country. We know yeah. that statistically. So we may be looking at this and saying, well, I'm managing mine pretty much, so I guess these guys can do it too. It seems to be a different mindset now. Well, it is, and it's certainly different than it was during the, the late 90s when, when the focus was on eliminating the debt and, uh, or eliminating the deficit, which happened very quickly. And then, and then as you said, we had a, about a decade of surpluses, which, which is what brought the debt-to-GDP ratio way down from the 70s into the 20s then. And but since, because of the deficits run up by uh, the Harper government and the first two years of the Trudeau government, it's come back up to about 30%. What about uh, the conditions? And, and and let's put this again in perspective. We already know that uh, uh, it's being predicted right now that Canada is probably going to lead the G7 when, with economic growth this year. Right. I, uh, unemployment is down relative. I mean, it's the lowest it's been for quite some time right now. So right. there seem to be favorable conditions right now for a hold-the-line budget. Uh, but you're absolutely right, Professor. There are some some storm clouds on the horizon. One of them, of course, being the NAFTA negotiations. Being NAFTA, absolutely, and uh, NAFTA one, and and uh, the other simply because that this uh, this expansion that we've been on is now about a decade old. And uh, if you look back at history, uh, not many expansions, if any, last beyond last much longer than that. So uh, uh, there may be just 
kind of a natural cycle of, uh, that will take us down. But uh, but certainly the NAFTA, the whole NAFTA thing is a big, big question mark right now. There was pressure, and I heard this again yesterday from some of the people commenting on the budget, Professor, that uh, what they wanted to see here was the government respond to the tax cuts uh, that the, the American uh, business uh, community is now uh, benefiting from, uh, the corporate tax mm-hmm. cuts, that being, uh, and some of those programs, that uh, that you've got to respond to this immediately. And, and I got the sense that Ottawa's response was, it's too soon to, to, to counter that. Now, let's see how that rolls out. And we didn't see any evidence of that at all. I know I know that corporate Canada is upset about that, but yeah. did, was the government being shrewd and in, in, in just say, let's wait? Well, I think, I mean, clearly their preferences were on these spending programs, yeah. not, on, not on taxes. I mean, they, they can, I guess, two things that probably went into their thinking. In terms of, uh, you're right about the corporate tax rate, but the small business corporate tax rate is still lower in Canada than in the U.S. So, That's right, yeah. So they're not too worried about that one. And, you know, the there's no question tax rates are a factor, but they're not the only factor. And, uh, and, uh, you know, you can also point to the quality of the labor force, the strength of the labor force, the uh, the um, living environment, and in, in that that we offer to uh, companies and to workers and companies. These are all important decisions in in corporate investment, or cor- important factors, I should say, in corporate investment as well. So, tax is a factor, but it's certainly not the only one. There was a huge kerfuffle, as we all recall now, last year's budget, uh, Professor, uh, about the reforms for small businesses, the tax reforms that uh, Minister Morneau had put back. Now, they've walked back on most of them, and one of the more contentious ones was still the income sprinkling uh, that uh, they said they were going to hold off on that. They seem to have solidified that right now, and it seems to, once again, have benefited the small business. In other words, they seem to have walked away from what they were proposing to do last year. Yeah, pretty much. It's pretty much a dead issue now. I think they've... uh They've uh, pretty close to abandoned it. They, there's some face-saving stuff in the budget on it, but it's pretty much gone. So, uh, once again, this seems to be, in, in the greater scheme of things, uh, to set up for the 2019 budget, uh, which obviously is going to be delivered, well, let's assume at the same time of year, around February, uh, right. with the eye towards an election, which is going to be in October of 2019. Right. Right. Uh, but but again, those economic conditions, those worldwide conditions, are going to be a factor in this situation. Does this does this put more pressure on the Canadian delegation now to try to get an NAFTA deal of some sort? Well, to- that, uh, I mean, I don't know if it puts more. I mean, there already was a lot of pressure on them. Obviously, yeah. um, certainly by next year at this time, we should have a we should know whether it's going to live or die, and if it's going to live in what form. Um, so uh, a lot of those uncertainties will be settled, and uh, uh, yeah, they will get factored into the the next budget. What does this do to us in the short term? To you, me, on on, on Main Street Canada, uh, you know, are we going to be impacted by this positively or negatively, or are we going to notice no difference at all? Essentially, I don't think. Well, I mean, if if we're in if we're in a situation where. Uh, Parental leave and daycare uh, issues uh, affect us. I'm not. I'm not in that situation any longer. But uh, I mean, I think we those people will see some uh, will see some effect. Um, people who uh, receive the child tax benefit are going to see some small changes. But uh, overall, no, nothing. Nothing big or dramatic is going to uh, is going to change. 
The other element to this, of course, that the government's talked about, and I guess we're waiting for this to happen, is what's going to happen with carbon taxing and, and the impact that's going to have. And I know there's some pushback here in Ontario because of uh, the, uh, the pending provincial election and whether right. or not there's going to be a change in government. Uh, but that's, that's going to be a huge factor, and that's a game changer if they decide to move forward on that. Well, I think they're moving forward on that. I don't think there's there was not not really anything uh, uh, significant that I caught in the budget on it. But I think they made it clear they're going to move forward on it. Um, Ontario is a bit of an uncertainty that I guess won't get resolved until uh, until we get through the June election. But uh, uh, I, I don't think there's any doubt that the federal government's going to continue moving forward on it. But there are going to be implications to uh, to provincial uh, budgets, et cetera, because, oh, I mean... Yeah, if that's right, absolutely. They're using, I think, the BC model is sort of a template for this, where, uh, yes, there's a tax, certainly, uh, but by uh, there's a, there's also a rebate that goes back to the provinces, uh, which would right. be significant. So I, you're, you're absolutely right. I don't think we've heard the end of the debate here in Ontario about the implications of, of what are happening in, in, when it comes to that. But this relationship between federal budgets and provincial budgets is going to be interesting. Uh, with the provincial budget coming up in just a couple of days here in Ontario and see whether or not what uh, Minister Morneau did yesterday is going to have any impact on what we're going to do here in Ontario. Yeah, um, I don't think it'll have much impact. There was, uh, There's no real change in any of the, the federal transfers to the provinces or those sorts of things. So, um, you know, the, I think the provincial budget is probably pretty much cast cast now, and I don't think anything happened yesterday that will dramatically uh, change that. No, the only problem I, I can see from a municipal standpoint uh, is the fact that uh, they have slightly cut back on infrastructure spending. Uh, some of the money that they said was going to go out the door probably isn't this year, and I guess it's reallocated to some of those other programs we've already talked about. Right, right, and some of it will come back in next year in the pre-election budget. Exactly, exactly. In other words, it looks a lot better if they say, hey, guess what, we found new money, Yeah, which is exactly. really, really going to be the money they should have spent this year. But, I mean, uh, you know, municipalities may have to tighten the belt this year, but with the expectation that it's probably better news ahead next year. Exactly, exactly. I think we'll see some of it come back. Professor, thanks as always. Great to get your perspective on this. I really appreciate the time okay. today. Okay, good to talk to you. Take Bye-bye care. now. That's uh, Professor Alan Maslow, of course, uh, from Carleton University, the uh, School of Public Policy and Administration at Carleton. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Right now, it has been an eventful couple of days uh, in the United States, especially in Washington uh, with uh, Donald Trump. Uh, I want to get into that in a couple of seconds, but of course the Mueller investigation continues. Uh, as late as uh, just a few minutes ago, Trump was on Twitter uh, calling his attorney general, uh, what was the word, Laura? In- disgraceful. Disgraceful. He said, he said he described the attorney general's conduct and then said it's a disgrace, so you can you can uh, bring it back to him. Read into that. Laura Babcock, yeah. president of uh, Power Group, is with us here in studio. Not the first time he's gone after Jeff Sessions. No, and of course this is someone he appointed, but I think he had this private sector notion that the attorney general was going to be someone who would protect his interests, much like his personal attorney has done for many years. Years. That's not the case. That's not how the Constitution works or the separation of powers or anything else. Uh, but he has been very critical of Jeff Sessions because Jeff Sessions recused himself from the whole Russia investigation and therefore Trump lost control of it. And uh, so, yeah, he's been critical of Jeff Sessions many times. That was one of the most revealing tweets by Trump uh, when that whole thing happened and Sessions recused himself from mm-hmm. this. And essentially he was lambasted by Trump at the time because he said, I hired you to have my back. Right. Well, in other words, the, the, the attorney general is supposed to there be to protect the Constitution, not the president. 
Right. And I, when you think about the Trump's personal lawyer who uh, allegedly, or I think he actually acknowledged he paid $130,000 to Stormy Daniels, right? The, uh, the adult film actress who said she had an affair with Trump. So he's used to having a lawyer who will do anything, go to the mat for him. And of course, the Attorney General, that is not their role. It's their role is to run the Justice Department. And of course, so Rob Rosenstein then took over the whole Russia investigation. And uh, there have been so many developments in the last couple of weeks around what Mueller has come up with and indictments and whatnot, you can see uh, an uptick in Trump's tweets about Russia. When most people out there might be thinking, you know what, big deal, who cares, the economy's good, he seems to still be obsessed with it and pushing that narrative constantly. Well, and as late as last week, still tweeting, saying, why aren't they looking into Hillary? Uh, and and uh, the Comey investigation again, and now not investigating what, mm-hmm. was, what may have happened during the election, but investigating Comey himself. So he's obviously working on a different track than what Mueller's working on. Well, he's trying to do this. It's, it's a common thing that you would do in this kind of a crisis PR situation. Situation. He's trying to establish an alternative narrative. He's starting. To, he's trying to create false equiv- equivalencies, right? So, if uh, on the one hand they're trying to say that anything that comes out of the FBI and Mueller isn't valid because the FBI has issues, and so they've really been focusing on a couple of FBI agents and their text messages during their affair and during the election that make it look as though there are some people in the FBI who really don't like Trump, and I'm sure that's true. Uh, so they're pushing out. Well, that must discredit the Mueller findings. So whatever Mueller comes out with in advance, we're going going to make it less significant. But then on the other hand, they're doing the second tract, which is, okay, now let's create a false equivalency. Let's say that no matter what comes out, Hillary Clinton and what her crimes are worse, right? This whole locker up chant, all of that has been about um, creating an alternative theory of, of what's really a crime, if you will. Yesterday, the announcement that he's already named a campaign director for the 2020 campaign. You can tell where his focus is. <laughs> right, of course. For people who think that he's going to go gently into that good night and not stay around and fight, I think it's ridiculous. Trump likes to fight, and he feels as though, I think this Russia word is an existential threat to his legitimacy. Even if Mueller comes up with no collusion, even if Mueller simply comes up with what he's tasked to do, which is to find out whether or not Russia uh, is hurting the U.S. electoral process, and what, if anything, they did with the Trump campaign. I think that Trump looks at it and says, well, any mention of Russia being involved means that somehow I'm not a legitimate president. It somehow takes away from my victory, much like his focus on Hillary, because she actually won the popular vote. And that's not something that he can get over. The Electoral College win was simply not enough. So I think you've got someone who likes to fight and will run again, is announcing early that he's running again because he wants to have a definitive victory this time. He wants to remove all doubt. It's, it's noteworthy to, to mention once again, too, about the Russian involvement. We already know there is, and most of the intelligence agencies in the States are on the same page on this. Uh, but the detractors, the, the, the Sean Hannity's and others, have said, look, it don't, you know, the, the money that they spend and the small, you can't influence the U.S. You can, though. You, and it's yeah. done strategically. I mean, all you needed to do to win that election was to influence what happened in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and mm-hmm. Ohio, in key areas there, which were heretofore given to, to Clinton. They thought they were going to be Democratic, and they turned out not to be. Now, we, uh, I'm not going to suggest right now, because we don't have any proof that that was the influence, but that's where some of that money was spent. That's all you had to do. It'd be a waste of time to try to influence votes in Utah and, another, mm-hmm. and in Alabama. You already knew how those events were going to be, but those were pivotal swing states. There's a number of things that have come out that Russia has been up to. Uh, one of the things is just sowing discord, causing this real tribalism, and they exploit U.S. conflicts, narratives. They try to exploit the Parkland shooting uh, with bots, with fake accounts, 
all, just to drum up all kinds of conspiracies and get people outraged, right? Because it destabilizes. So that's one thing that they do. I think five states, they found out that there was actual um, foreign Russian attacks on their electoral systems during the election. But did they influence actual votes? They haven't found that out yet. And because the U.S. system is so states-based, it's, it's compli- mm-hmm. you can't just go to a central technical place and, and put in a virus, right? It's, it's much more complicated for them to influence the actual ballot boxes. But they do something else as well, which is they put out this fake stuff on social media. And in that case, they targeted those states that you refer to. They they micro-targeted where should we put up these false memes about Clinton. And they changed images. And so they, these are not simplistic trolls. These are very organized. And they plan on doing it again. And that's why you have, I think it was Sweden, as one of the Scandinavian countries, that came out with a whole raft of things they're going to do to protect their elections from the Russians, uh, things that are no-brainers that you would hope the U.S. just copies the list and goes ahead and does before 2018. I, I can tell you, I feel reassured by a story that I saw on Monday uh, where they suggested that uh, for the Russians to influence the Canadian election would be far more difficult because our voting system is so antiquated. <laughs> right. <You laughs> we're, know, we're still in the 19th century, and I guess that's a good thing. I partly want to go back to paper ballots, but then I remember the hanging chads yeah, from the uh, too, yeah. <laughs> the Gore election uh, loss, and that was painful for all of us. So is there a really good way to do this? I think cyber attacks, seriously, are, are the big threat of the future. The point is, is though we saw the head of the NSA yesterday testify in front of Congress that he has not been tasked beyond his own uh, sense of what he should do by this White House with extra measures or tools to protect the U.S. from another Russian invasion of its election. And so uh, that leaves one thinking, well, does Trump want Russia in the mix here? Are they? Is he just refusing to believe it, all the evidence, because he thinks it undermines his legitimacy? But when you have the head of the NSA saying that they haven't been asked by the president to fight this great threat, uh, it is destabilizing to say the least. Well, he's criticized Obama on Twitter for not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, Obama, he said all he did was say, hey, stop it. He's done nothing. I mean, there's right. always, already an acknowledgement that there was some kind of Russian interference, but they've set up no defense mechanism to try to prevent I it from happening. I think Obama is guilty of being overly careful. He didn't want to bring up what was going on with the Russians because he didn't want to look like he was trying to tilt it towards Hillary. Um, so that was an overabundance of caution politically sensitivity that I think was a mistake. He should have come out with this. And we had that whole Comey mess back and forth in the last days of the election because of all of this stuff that was going on. So I don't think Obama handled it well. Uh, But now Trump Trump's been in there for over a year now. He can't keep passing the buck back. So Obama didn't do enough? Fine. But what are you doing about it? What about the uh, testimony or maybe more to the point non-testimony of Hope Hicks? Well, as one congressperson said, they'd been bannoned, which is a you know a horrible new term. Basically, where you go in front of Congress, congressional oversight committees, and you say, uh, "Yeah, I'm not going to talk about anything Trump has said to me since he became since the transition because of executive privilege," which is nonsense and doesn't hold up, and it won't hold up with Mueller. And so, presumably, Mueller already has all the goods, and so Bannon and Hope Hicks are just treating these congressional committees uh, as you know they're not very consequential. They're they're not going to give up any of the goods. What was interesting, though, was Hope Hicks, who's supposedly a communications professional, although I would argue her bona fides, uh, she said that she does tell lies to the president. And so when you have someone saying that they lie to the president and then they're sitting in front of Congress, how does she have any credibility ever again in terms of any communications that she puts out? And I think that we've seen that credibility gap, as you called it, with so many in this administration and in Trump's orbit.
One of the things you do with Power Group, and I know you do this uh, at the corporate level and even on the individual level with clients, uh, is you talk about presentation mm-hmm. and, and about not just dealing with people and talking in public forums, but, but how you control yourself and how you get your message across. And one of those is body language, which speaks volumes about somebody. Absolutely. Uh, you, you put something up on Twitter the, earlier today, which I, I was really intrigued by. Uh, yesterday, I guess it was, uh, or tra- Donald Trump addressed the, uh, the U.S. governors, mm-hmm. and he was up there on the podium, and he took some questions. And forget about even what was being said. How he responded in his body language was mm-hmm. very telling. It is very telling. So body language speaks louder than words. Words are like 7%, right? Tone is another 10 or so, and the body language is the rest. So what you want to be doing as a communications person and as someone presenting an idea, whether you're a leader in a company or you're on a podium or you're at the debate tonight, for instance, uh, for the PCs, is you want to be able to make sure that your words are reinforced and magnified by your body language, not the contrary. So oftentimes body language gives us tells where we can say, ah, they're not sure about that. They, you know, their words don't don't mm-hmm. match what they're doing. In the case of what I tweeted about Trump, he was listening. So he wasn't actually putting any words out, but he was listening to the words of this governor. And this governor uh, started to talk about gun control and Trump's idea of arming teachers. And as soon as Trump realized that this governor was being critical of him, he immediately went to a closed body language posture, crossed his arms, got very defensive. And what was so fascinating to that wasn't a surprise, but what was so fascinating is when this governor cleverly said, well, you know, some of us, we just put out suggestions and we, we're just testing the waters. And once we listen to people, we change them. Trump opened up his body language because now he'd been given an out to his position. And it just showed how incredibly malleable he is to influence, how he doesn't hold a firm position. And rather, if, if you can make him look good, if you can tell him that there's a way he can look better, he opens up to that. And it explains why so many people have successfully manipulated him in, in the wee hours on major things like, look at the DACA. There was a deal about to happen. And then he got influenced by somebody right before and changed his mind. You could see him changing his mind. Well, the airstrike in Syria. Absolutely. I, his daughter walked in and, and started talking about it, and the next thing you know, he's ordering an airstrike. Absolutely. Apparently, she showed him pictures, and he's very visually drawn and prefers mm-hmm. uh, pictures over reading, if you take any stock of Michael Wolf's book, uh, Fire and Fury. But watching him, you could just see that his main inclination as a salesperson is to please. And so when it looked like he was not pleasing that person, he got very defensive, like, I got to fight this guy. And then when the guy said, oh, but you can still please me if you take this out, then he opened up again. And so it it was just a a stunning revelation of how much conviction he lacks and how open he is to influence. When you see that that video, uh, and again, Mm -hmm. when uh, the governor was into the gun control thing, uh, Trump leaned backwards, Mm -hmm. not engaging, but backwards and folded mm-hmm. his arms as if to say, I'm not allowing that to, to permeate. That's right. I'm not going to take a criticism. Apparently he's not able to, which goes back to Hope Hip his communications person telling lies to him to, to you know, save, save his ego, I guess. So he was not going to listen to a critique. As soon as it sounded critical, he got his back up. Uh, he backed away. But then as soon as you heard the words, and, you know, you know, you're probably just doing this, and some of us do that, and here's a way out of this mess you put yourself in, he leaned back in, opened up his arms, mm-hmm. and was thinking you could see him calculating. And that's what's really interesting is that most very successful, very competent leaders don't allow you to 
see them calculating when they're in a public or in a leadership position like that. When they don't let you see everything going on in their mind, because then they lose advantage, they lose some gravitas. And so with Trump, it's really stunning, even in cabinet meetings, to watch him when the conversation gets too confusing for him. He does that same closed, lean back body posture. When he feels in control, he leans in like on The Apprentice. Let me ask you about the gun control issue. I don't want to get into the whole debate, but about the reaction to it, because you've been uh, quite active on social mm-hmm. media about some of your, your, your opinions uh, about how he has responded to what's happened. Mm-hmm. And I think, not that there's a silver lining to what the tragedy that happened, of course, in Parkland, Florida, but the way the students have responded it's and tremendous. continued to respond. And now I, I'm getting the sense, and I think from, from what you were writing, I, I think you're feeling the same way. It's starting to have an impact on Trump. Absolutely. Heretofore, I mean, previously, he paid no attention. After the Las Vegas massacre mm-hmm. and, and other school shootings, and there's one every week now, sadly, uh, you heard nothing about this. And, and just about, the, you know, it was, it's mental health, it's not guns. He's, I don't know if he's softening, but he seems to be changing his tact a little bit. And it's because that student power that's being exemplified there is not going away. I think it's because the students are celebrities. They're taking all the airtime. They are fantastic communicators. They're better at direct communication than even Trump is. They're on panels and they look right direct to camera, breaking the protocol and and calling out people. (laughs) It's tremendous. They listened to the NRA spokesperson. They were on a panel on this week, on Sunday, and I think it was David Hogg turned direct to camera and said, NRA members, all five million of you law-abiding gun owners who I respect, is she speaking for you or the gun manufacturers? I mean, these people are, these students are better at social media, better at direct communication than Trump. They're better at call to actions. They've said, don't go to Florida for spring break until they get a common sense gun laws. I mean, they know how to pressure the economy. I look at the changes with the airlines and all these other organizations corporately moving away from NRA support. So Trump is watching all this and saying, hold on, I'm on the losing side of something popular. <laughs> you know, these people are more popular. They're the new celebrity. I need to get on this thing. And so you, and cleverly, I think he, because he is so malleable and lacks conviction, he might actually actually be able to push the NRA because they bought him for $30 million. He knows that he owns them. They're not going to run away on their investment. And so it sounds as though he might actually do something with this. But I think it's the students' media abilities that are helping to get on the radar. Well, they already got the Florida governor to roll over on this. It's amazing. And, 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 and Trump, Rick Scott, it's amazing. And, and Trump, of course, has said, well, I, I, we were talking about eliminating bump stocks. And, and to the students, to their credits, that's not enough. Right. Don't, don't patronize us. And also, I don't think Trump likes Wayne LaPierre and the the speech at CPAC making it sound as though they're going to stay with the same old, same old. When he's out there saying that he had lunch with these guys and these guys are, are open to change, and then they double down. I don't think he likes that. He likes to take down anybody who's challenging his authority. So the NRA unwittingly might have backed a candidate who will actually go against them for the first time in years. It's It's amazing. Well, and the bottom line here is that I'm sure somebody has told uh, the president this, that uh, a lot of those students, uh, they're going to be voting in 2020. Not only that, but as they've said, uh, they were told, you know, you have to outlive the NRA, and they intend to. They're not going anywhere. They're young. They have the momentum. And it was even Martin Luther King's, one of the family members said, you know, my father's movement was mostly young people, you know, Mm -hmm. college-age people. So don't underestimate the power of uh, motivated. And they're fighting for their lives and their future. They grew up in the Columbine generation with school drills for mass shootings. Can you imagine? Uh, they have a different frame of reference, and they're not going to stop. And so I think we should stop being so cynical, and the world should support them. Remarkable times going on in the face of tragedy. Laura Babcock from Power Group. Thanks as always. Great to see you. My pleasure. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.